Good morning. Welcome to Mosaic Community Church. I'm Reverend Angel Halstead. I'm the senior pastor of, of our congregation. It's great that you are here with us. We want you to relax and enjoy worship as we just share and worship of, of God and God's truth together. We are a community of people, a diverse community of people who love God and who believe that God wants to use us to make um, our community better. We believe that, uh, that God wants to affirm us as God's people, that God wants to use us, that God enjoys us, that God made us good, and that God wants us to see the goodness that He's placed in each and every one of us, the good that God has placed in creation, so we can enjoy it together, and that we can continue to do the work that God has called us to do, to be fruitful, to multiply, to make something beautiful out of the wonderful resources God has given us. And so we in part do that in our fellowship together in our Sunday service. We come together to hear the Word of God, to enjoy each other, even in this dimension, uh, virtually. And so we invite you to add your name to the chat and let us know you're here. We invite you to sing out, out loud the words that are sung in our praise songs. We invite you, if you need prayer, to ask for prayer. But mostly, we invite you to be you. You are enough. God sees you. God desires a relationship with you. And we desire a relationship with you as well. Good morning. Good morning and welcome to Mosaic Community Church. Let's enjoy worship together. Today, I'll read a prayer attributed to St. Francis. Lord, make me an instrument of your peace. Where there is hatred, let me sow love. Where there is injury, pardon. Where there is doubt, faith. Where there is despair, hope, where there is darkness, light, where there is sadness, joy. O Divine Master, grant that I may not so much seek to be consoled as to console, to be understood as to understand, to be loved as to love. For it is in giving that we receive. It is in pardoning that we are pardoned, and it is in dying that we are born to eternal life. Amen. Oh, 
It's better to have a partner than to go it alone. Share the work, share the wealth. And if one falls down, the other helps. But if there's no one to help, tough. Two in a bed warm each other. Alone, you shiver all night. By yourself, you're unprotected. With a friend, you can face the worst. Can you round up a third? A three-stranded rope isn't easily snapped. Mosaic. Angel is traveling this morning and so I am substituting. Uh, I will lead us through some readings and some thoughts about community and do so as an introduction to our new series, The Sum of Us. However, to do so, I'm going to need everybody to find a paper clip. Um, there's a family-friendly activity, if you if you like, um, but everybody needs a paperclip for a little demonstration that we'll do together. So, to kick off the sum of us, our series, we're coming right off the heels of Easter, right off the heels of reading Begin Again as a Church by Eddie Glaude Jr. And as I was thinking about this, I wondered, well, what does Ecclesiastes, a three-chord bond that is not easily broken, what does that have to do with Easter? After all, Easter is about resurrection and about new life. Begin Again is about finding new life as a community. And then I realized that's what makes Ecclesiastes a perfect follow-up to Easter. Because you can't have rebirth 
without having been dead. And you can't have new life without having old life that came before. And out of the Hebrew Bible, there isn't any other book that I know of that is as concerned with the worth and the deficiencies and the successes and the failures of the present life than Ecclesiastes. When I read Ecclesiastes prophetically, reflecting on what is good and what is bad about our life, it reminds me of the things that are good and it convicts me of things that are not, after all, worthwhile, things that are merely vanity. It reminds me this connection between Ecclesiastes and rebirth. It reminds me of the story of the harrowing of hell. Now, this is an apocryphal story where it essentially explains what Christ was up to during his three days in the tomb. He enters the gates of hell, bursts them down, charges through, and makes goes about his business redeeming the pieces of creation that were furthest away from the creator. Redeeming the good and leaving the bad. And that, combined with Ecclesiastes, tells me that some things should stay in the tomb. Ecclesiastes, the writer of this book, named The Teacher, or in Hebrew, I think it's Kahelet, um, has a name for this. Some things that should stay in the tomb. Ecclesiastes, Kahelet, in Ecclesiastes 1, I've got too many bookmarks. Where is it? writes that what is crooked cannot be made straight. That is the teacher's way, I, I think, on my reading, of saying that some things should stay in the tomb. Let's talk about crookedness. I want you to pull out your paper clip that you got. And now, I want you to try and straighten it as straight as you can It started out crooked, and if you really pull, you can get it kind of straight, but I have little kinks in my paper clip. I'm sure you do too, because what is crooked cannot be made straight. In So my day job, I'm an engineer, and I actually think about this kind of thing all the time. The act of unbending a paper clip applies what engineers call stress to the paper clip. And most engineers know that when you apply stress to an object, if you apply enough stress, it's not going to return to the shape that it started as. In other words, this is even locked into physics and engineering. What is crooked cannot be made straight. Let's talk about what Kahelet, the teacher, has to say about crooked things. Our verse for this series is Ecclesiastes 4, verse 12, but 
for a little bit of context, let's back up to verse 1 of chapter 4. Again, I saw all the oppressions that are practiced under the sun. Look, the tears of the oppressed with no one to comfort them. On the side of their oppressors, there was power with no one to comfort them. And I thought the dead who have already died are more fortunate than the living who are still alive. But better than both is the one who has not yet been and has not seen the evil deeds that are done under the sun. Then I saw that all toil and all skill and work come from one person's envy of another. This also is vanity and a chasing after wind. Fools fold their hands and consume their own flesh. Better is a handful with quiet than two handfuls with toil and a chasing after wind. Again, I saw vanity under the sun, the case of solitary individuals without sons or brothers, yet there is no end to all their toil, and their eyes are never satisfied with riches. For whom am I toiling, they ask, and depriving myself of pleasure? This also is vanity and an unhappy business. Two, after all, are better than one, because they have a good reward for their toil. If they fall, one will lift up the other. But woe to one who is alone and falls and does not have another to help. Again, if two lie together, they keep warm. But how can one keep warm alone? And though one might prevail against another, two will withstand one. A threefold cord is not quickly broken. So that's the prophetic language of the teacher that I mentioned earlier. It is these oppressions, the one who cries out and has no one to hear them. Those are the things that should stay in the tomb. Perhaps the most powerful symbol and example of this oppression in our own time is that of racism. Racism is, after all, its own perverse three-chord bond. It is not quickly broken, as we've all learned over this past year and over over decades of struggle against this three-chord bond. It's not a bond that ties us together, keeps us warm. It is a bond that chains us. I want to talk about three chords of this three-chord bond of racism. Power, socialization, and heroism. The first bond is that of power. And I have found no better definition than the definition proposed by Ibram X. Kendi in the book How to Be an Anti-Racist. Kendi writes... What is racism? Racism is a marriage of racist policies and racist ideas that produces and normalizes racial inequalities. He goes on to define racial inequality as two or more racial groups not standing on approximately equal footing. And a racist policy is any measure that produces or sustains that inequity between racial groups. And then he writes later, Racist policy cuts to the core of racism, better than racial discrimination, another common phrase. Discrimination is an immediate and visible manifestation of an underlying racial policy. 
When someone discriminates against a person in a racial group, they're carrying out a policy or taking advantage of the lack of a protective policy. We all have the power to discriminate, but only an, ex an exclusive few have the power to make policy. Focusing on racial discrimination takes our eyes off the central agents of racism, racist policy and racist policy makers, or what Kendi calls racist power. In other words, racism is a part of the power dynamics of our culture. It is a three-chord bond, not easily broken because it is made itself invisible, especially to white people like myself who benefit from that power. Another chord of this three-chord bond is precisely that invisibility, which the author Robin D'Angelo addresses in her book, White Fragility. Racist power is invisible often to white people because we are socialized into that power. What I mean by socialization can be explained by the findings of a 2019 study by Persick and other authors. They found that as early as four years old, babies would sh or children would show a preference towards white images, towards white people, pictures of white people, and especially contrasted to an image of a black man. That's what I mean by socialization. It makes racist power invisible. And even when we glimpse, when I glimpse racist power, that brings me to what white fragility is. It is hard to accept that good people, people who try to be good, are capable of perpetuating racist acts. And in fact, do perpetuate racist acts, even when we try not to. Fragility insulates us from discomfort, just as fear, sin, and death allowed Peter to deny Jesus three times. White fragility and the invisibility of racist power allows me to deny my own culpability, my own profit from racial power. But when the rooster crows, the truth becomes none. Even good people are capable of perpetuating racist acts. It's a hard thing to learn about myself, um, and I'm learning it every day almost in a new way, in one way or another. My initial response is a little resigned, but hopeful. I think maybe if I read one more book, then I can learn the right tools to stop being racist. Or maybe if I watch a movie that is about civil rights, or if I listen to the right music or 
think more about this or, or journal or pray. It's almost, those thoughts are almost heroic in a way. Some, some would call them heroic because I recognize that I'm not, that I'm flawed after all, but I'm trying to take steps to improve. Now, don't get me wrong, those are important steps and they're necessary, but they're not sufficient. Kahalat, the teacher, has more to say on this subject. From chapter one of Ecclesiastes, verse 12 through 18. I, the teacher, Kahalat, when king over Israel and Jerusalem, applied my mind to seek and to search out by wisdom all that is done under heaven. It is an unhappy business that God has given to human beings to be busy with. I saw all the deeds that are done under the sun, and I see all is vanity and a chasing after wind. What is crooked cannot be made straight, and what is lacking cannot be counted. I said to myself, I've acquired great wisdom, surpassing all who were over Jerusalem before me, and my mind has had great experience of wisdom and knowledge. And I applied my mind to know wisdom and to know madness and folly. I perceived that this also is but a chasing after wind. For in much wisdom is much vexation, and those who increase knowledge increase sorrow. See, Kahelet reminds us that heroism, that heroic searching after wisdom and knowledge, is a futile gesture. One does not prevail against a three-chord bond. One does not prevail against two. And racism is a three-chord bond, not easily broken, woven into our society, into my socialization, into my own perceptions of what heroism even is. If I am to break this three-chord bond for myself, I can't do it by myself. To even attempt to do so would be to assume that I could achieve that without God, without the help of Christ, without the liberation of Christ, and without a three-chord bond of my own. So, in other words, in order to break the three-chord bond of racism, this perverse chain, we need a three-chord bond of our own. And that bond is community. When I think about community, there's one figure who is first in my mind, Jean Vanier, who is, well, Vanier in 1964 was a doctorate in philosophy. He was a pretty smart guy. And then he decided one day to invite a mentally ill man to live with him. And I think he had a roommate too, but um, this solitary act sparked a movement that is now worldwide, almost 60 years later. Um, this, this movement is called large communities, which is French for the arch, and you'll have to forgive my pronunciation. This arch community is one that is centered around the mentally ill, the physically ill. In fact, those 
members of the community are explicitly the central members of their community. And I think there's no better, no more humble thinker about the effects that community can have. So I'd like to read a little bit from Jean Vanier's Community and Growth. So the first chord of community, according to Jean Vanier, in paraphrased by me, is the chord of dailiness as opposed to heroism. Quote, it is quite easy to found a community. There are always plenty of courageous people who want to be heroes, are ready to sleep on the floor, to work hard hours each day, to live in dilapidated houses, and I would add, are ready to renounce racism. It's not hard to camp. Anybody can rough it for a time. So the problem isn't in getting the community started. There's always enough energy for takeoff. The problem comes when we are in orbit and going round and round the same circuit. The problem is in living with brothers and sisters whom we have not chosen, but whom have been, who have been given to us, and in working ever more truthfully towards the goals of the community. A community which is just an explosion of heroism is not a true community. True community implies a way of life, a way of living and seeing reality. It implies, above all, fidelity in the daily round. And this is made up of simple things, getting meals, using and washing the dishes and using them again, going to meetings, as well as gift, joy, celebration. And it is made up of forgiving 70 times 77. A community is only created when its members accept that they are not going to achieve great things. They are not going to be heroes. They simply live each day with new hope like children, in wonderment as the sun rises and in thanksgiving as it sets. Community is only being created when they have recognized that the greatness of humanity lies in the acceptance of our insignificance, our human condition and our earth. And to thank God for having put in a finite body the seeds of eternity, which are visible in small and daily gestures of love and forgiveness. The beauty of people is in this fidelity to the wonder of each day. So the antidote to heroism is dailiness, daily acts of love, forgiveness, joy, and even doing the dishes. The second chord in the three chord bond of community is that of losing our illusions, waking up to our socialization and realizing that what we once believed is but an illusion. Again, from Vanier. One of the most important things for growth in people and in communities is dedication to truth, even, and maybe especially, if it hurts. There is no growth when we live in falsehood and illusion, when we're frightened to let the truth be uncovered and seen by ourselves and by others. So often, we hide our fears, our injustices, our incompetence, our hypocrisy, our racism. 
We can hide behind religious rules, as did the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Instead, we must open ourselves up to the truth and let it be revealed, even if it shows our intrinsic poverty and sinfulness. And then let us cry out to Jesus, the Savior, who will send us his spirit and guide us and forgive us. Only then can the truth make us free. Vanier goes on to say that Peter went through four crises while following Jesus. I imagine it was a crisis when Jesus called him. Part of Peter must have regretted leaving his family and his trade, but his love for Jesus and his hope enabled him to get over this. Then there was the crisis when he discovered that Jesus was not as he would have wanted him to be. He would have preferred a Jesus who was prophetic and messianic, who didn't insist on washing the disciples' feet, who didn't speak of dying. The greatest crisis was when Jesus became weak and died. Then Peter denied Jesus, and that was the crisis when Peter lost all the illusions about himself. These are the four great crises of community life. The first, which is certainly the least hard, is when we arrive. The second is the discovery that the community is not as perfect as we thought. It has weaknesses and flaws. The ideal and our illusions crumble. We are faced with reality. The third crisis is when we feel misunderstood and rejected by the community even. When, for example, we're not elected to a position of responsibility or don't get a job that we'd hoped for. And the fourth crisis is the hardest. Our disappointment in ourselves because of all of the anger, jealousies, frustrations, and racism that boils up in us. If we're to become totally integrated into a community, if we're to become a three-chord bond, we must know how to pass through these crises. They are all new deepenings, movements toward inner freedom. They all imply the losing of illusion and the gradual welcoming of reality as it is. The third chord in the three-chord bond of community is that of trial and of stress as an antidote to power. Again, from Vanier. No community grows without times of trial and difficulty, times of poverty, persecution, tension, internal and external struggles, times which destroy the community's balance and reveal its weakness, times of difficulty which are inevitable when a new step has to be taken. Creating a community means struggling against all sorts of things. But once the community is launched, energy may evaporate and people may seek distractions. They may compromise with other values. This can be very marked in a therapeutic community, such as L'Arche, the community that Vanier founded. At the start, the community accepts people who are difficult or depressed, people who break windows. Then gradually everyone settles down and if window breakers arrive, they're unacceptable. The energy which used to be there to tackle all sorts of problems and to deal with difficult people have dissipated. A time comes when we feel too comfortable together, and that complacency signals a decline in the quality of unity. That is why times of trial are important for a community. They force people to look at themselves and what is happening in the community, and then to reassess their goals and their lives of prayer. 
trials oblige a community to refine the quality of unity and the energy to face difficulties. The three chords in the bond of community that I've chosen to highlight from Vanier's work are dailiness, the loss of illusion, and times of trial. Or, as I like to think of it, times of stress. And I use that word stress very intentionally, and it has to do with your paperclip. See, we engineers have a term for the energy that's being dissipated to bend a paperclip back and forth. We call it stress. And as we apply stress to a paperclip, it actually becomes stronger. All the individual little atoms of metal in my metal paperclip here, when I apply stress to them, that's energy. And the paperclip absorbs the energy and all the metal grains become aligned. They all face one direction together. And that action brought on by the energy of stress allows the metal to become stronger. So take your paperclip as a straight, um, as you straightened it earlier, and try and bend it back. And then maybe bend it out again. And you'll notice that it's more difficult than it was before. We engineers call that stress hardening. In other words, even though what is crooked cannot be made straight again, a crooked stick, a crooked piece of metal is stronger than a straight one. It has absorbed the energy of times of stress to become stronger than it was before, to align all of its members in a common direction. It's my hope and my prayer that our three-chord bond will strengthen as it undergoes stress, that our bond of community will strengthen in times of trial, and that we will embrace Christ's redemption of a crooked line. One of my favorite musical artists is the rapper Propaganda. In his song, Made Straight, he quotes Ecclesiastes and he says, we are crooked, our community is crooked, but God uses crooked sticks to draw straight lines. Thank you, and I hope you have a good morning. Good morning. Let's worship together. No 
place I would rather be. No place I would rather be. Here in your love, here in your love. No place I would rather be. No place I would rather be. No place I would
your son remained with his disciples after his resurrection, teaching them to love all people as neighbors. As his disciples in this age, we offer our prayers on behalf of the universe in which we are privileged to live and our neighbors with whom we share it. Open our hearts to your power moving around us and between us and within us until your glory is revealed in our love of both friend and enemy, in communities transformed by justice and compassion, and in the healing of all that is broken. Amen. Are you ready, guys? Two, three, four. Yeah.